Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 34. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's Laura Reagan, LCSWC, with today's episode. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Dr. Dan Siegel is currently a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine, where he is on the faculty of the Center for Culture, Brain, and Development, and the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center. He is also the executive director of the Mindsight Institute, which focuses on how the development of Mindsight in individuals, families, and communities can be enhanced by examining the interface of human relationships and basic biological processes. Dr. Siegel has published extensively for both the professional and lay audiences. His three New York Times bestsellers are Brainstorm, The Power and Purpose of the Teenage Brain, and two books with Tina Payne Bryson, PhD, The Whole Brain Child, 12 Revolutionary Strategies to Nurture Your Child's Developing Mind, and No Drama Discipline, The Whole Brain Way to Calm the Chaos and Nurture Your Child's Developing Mind. He has many, 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 many other books, including the Mindful Brain Reflection and Attunement in the Cultivation of Well-Being, the Mindful Therapist, a Clinician's Guide to Mindsight and Neural Integration, and he's the founding editor for the Norton Professional Series on Interpersonal Neurobiology, which contains over three dozen textbooks. Dr. Siegel's unique ability to make complicated scientific concepts accessible and exciting has led him to be invited to address diverse, local, national, and international groups. He has lectured for the King of Thailand, Pope John Paul II, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Google University, London's Royal Society of Arts, and TEDx. And today, you're going to listen to him on Therapy Chat. So tune in for an interesting discussion, which I hope you will enjoy. Thanks. 
For those of you who are therapists and other professionals specializing in trauma, attachment, or parenting, today's guest really needs no introduction. He's quite simply a rock star in the overlapping fields of neuroscience, childhood trauma, attachment, and mindfulness. I'm incredibly grateful and honored that he's agreed to be on the podcast today. My guest is Dr. Dan Siegel. Dan, thank you so much for being here on Therapy Chat today. Laura, thank you for having me. The pleasure is all mine, and I have to preface our interview for the listeners. I have to tell them that I'm so appreciative that you've come back because I interviewed you a couple months ago, and because of a technical issue, your voice wasn't recorded. So I'm really grateful that you were able to come back so that we can share your message with my listeners. I know they're going to love it. Well, thank you. That would have been a great exercise in just silence and the power of silence. (laughs) (laughs) It was a mindfulness experience for me because when it was over, I said, and it didn't record, I said, oh my gosh, like, how could this happen? This is terrible. And then I was like, enjoy this moment. You just had a great conversation with someone who's one of the, a thought leader. And I mean, how lucky are you? So I was able to sort of stay present in that moment as I was you know, on the other, the other part of me was kind of panicking and saying, Oh my gosh. Oh no. So, well, it was a good, good exercise and let everything be our teacher. Uh, and also (laughs) an exercise in the simple reality that life happens. So if something can go wrong, there is a very high likelihood at some point it will go wrong. Yes. Well, thank you for being so understanding about that. You've done so much to advance our understanding of attachment trauma and how trauma affects brain development, what's happening in the brain when we practice mindfulness. So I'm really glad that you can explain some of that to our listeners today. Sure. Well, I mean, there's so much we can talk about, Um, you know, for parents and for educators who are trying to help children's minds develop or for therapists who are trying to help children, adolescents and adults' minds develop. This whole approach of thinking about what the mind is and how we can cultivate a healthy mind has been so um, uh, useful for a range of people. And for me, it's so rewarding to you know, take a, what's been kind of a passion and uh, I got to say a bit of an obsession in me in the last 30 years to really ask the question, what is the mind? Uh, and then try to really look at the sciences from math to anthropology and everything in between like psychology, medicine and fields that look deeply at the brain like neuroscience and try to put them all together in this field called interpersonal neurobiology. So that's the framework uh, that basically uses an approach that E.O. Wilson calls consilience where we try to find the universal principles across independent disciplines and that's called interpersonal neurobiology. And you know, now we have uh, over 50 textbooks in the Norton series, and there's a whole way of deeply approaching the process of human change and human health uh, through the lens of interpersonal neurobiology that we can, we can speak about. But it's a very exciting moment for the field of mental health to actually now have a common curriculum we can all draw upon. It is such an exciting moment and a fascinating subject, interpersonal neurobiology. Um, I'm glad to say, since I did get to speak with you before, I understand a little bit more what it is, but can you talk about that concept and how you started thinking about that? Sure. Well, you know, for me, um, I I guess I felt a lot of confusion myself when I was being trained in psychiatry. You know, I had 
trained as a biology major in college and studied biochemistry and you know and how enzymes work. And um, I had also worked on a suicide prevention service, being trained as a mental health volunteer to you know help people in crisis on a phone line while I was a college student. So I had that experience as an adolescent to learn about enzymes and also the power of emotions to keep uh, people alive when they're in a crisis. So when I went to medical school, I was really um, excited and, and hopeful that I could find a field that would combine these two seemingly different levels of experience. One was the levels of uh, molecules like enzymes in our body and our physiology, how, how the body functions. And the other was the level of our mental lives, you know, how our relationships could keep us alive when we were feeling hopeless. So um, I was unfortunately uh, disappointed when I went to medical school and dropped out for a while, came back. And after starting in pediatrics following medical school, I switched over to psychiatry. But the confusion and frustration I felt in psychiatry, you know, was that there wasn't really, as far as I could tell, a science of the mind that psychiatry was drawing upon. And later, as I would meet other professionals in the field of uh, mental health, so these would be psychologists and social workers and people in educational therapy, music therapy, dance therapy, movement therapy, any kind of mental health discipline. We have so many of us. But there was no common science of the mind. And what, what became very strange for me, almost like an Alice in Wonderland kind of uh, experience was to find that none of these fields um, had actually a definition of the mind that was fundamental to mind health or mental health. So, you, you know, you couldn't really say what the health of the mind was if you didn't start with what the mind is. So that started, you know, a long time ago in the late 80s, uh, which really began as a quest to use my training as a scientist to try to see were there insights that could help us in mental health draw upon, let's say, mathematics and physics and chemistry and biology and psychology and linguistics and anthropology, sociology. Anyone doing a formal discipline study of reality, could we combine them together into one? And, and there's a long story behind it, but, but the, the bottom line is, it really uh, taught me the power of drawing on the wisdom of the hard work of scientists and later on other people in, in the arts and, and uh, music and uh, study of even contemplative practice like mindfulness or even the study of religion, uh, that all these different disciplined ways of trying to explore the nature of truth and reality could be woven together into a common framework that that I had to name it something, so I called it interpersonal neurobiology, which really was trying to say the inter was meaning the betweenness of things. The personal meant that there was a reality to subjective experience that you feel personally. And I just threw in the word neurobiology to try to anchor it in science, but it, it could have had a different name besides neurobiology because it's not the same as social neuroscience. This is not a branch of neurobiology at all. It's a, it's a weaving together of all the sciences together. And the, the name is kind of sticking because there's so many books now under this title. But, um, you know, I, I, I want people to realize it's not a branch of neurobiology. It's a way of combining all sciences into one framework. So that's how it started. Yeah. So and that's a, um, a good point, because 
the fact that it's not a branch of neurobiology is um, important since that's different. And it's kind of like that word can seem above the comprehension of the average person to many of us. You know, it's just kind of an intimidating word or it could be. I think it is intimidating, Laura. I think you're right, and I'm sad about that. And that's why I keep on saying to people, let's change the name to, like, call it uh, Josephina or Joe or something like that <laughs> to make it more appealing. But, um, you know, I think that when, when people, you know, sit down and hear some of the basic principles, which we can talk about today, and I try to review this in my latest book called Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human, you know, that there's actually, when you, when you tell the story about the journey, as I do in this book, uh, you know, the, the, I had 20 people read the manuscript before I started, you know, getting it ready to go to the galleys and, and not, not the galleys where it's being killed, but the, the galleys where it's going to be turned into a book. The, um, you know, the, the feedback I got from a wide range of readers um, is that it's very accessible. So that, that was very rewarding to me because you're right, that the name can be inaccessible. But the fact is, we all have a mind, so you have the personal experience. Most of us, not everyone, has you know, relationships with other people, so that's the inter part. So the interpersonal is something you can feel very close at hand. It's something you experience every moment of your life. Um, and the science, yes, can be intimidating, but what I try to do is translate that in a way where when you kind of see the logic of... Um, asking questions like, for example, let's start with the most basic question, like, what is the mind? You know, Very and, basic, yet very huge. It's huge. It's huge. And, you know, it's, I just came back from Africa, and we were uh, meeting with different people in different tribes, asking them what they think the mind is, and do they use what's called mental state language, like about thoughts and feelings and stuff like that? And um, anyway, under under a tree that got it had a number on it for some reason, I guess some scientists were studying tree number eleven. These uh, people who were who are guides in the middle of nowhere in Namibia, you know, said they heard the most profound discussion they'd ever heard in all their years of taking people around under tree eleven. And the question we were discussing at lunch was, you know, what is the mind? And and what's fun about the discussion is everyone has a mind. And once you start asking that question, you come up with these strange um, realities, which is, number one, you know, I've asked 100,000 mental health professionals all over the world, has anyone ever said to you what the mind is? And it's only about 2 to 5% to say yes. So over 95% of mental health professionals has never been given even one lecture on what the mind is. And the same is true with teachers K through 12. I've asked 19,000 of them in person. And then you have the finding of interviewing chair people, which I've done, of psychiatry, psychology, um, philosophy, um, and even anthropology. And none of these fields have a definition of the word mind. So the field called philosophy of mind actually says you shouldn't define the mind. Hmm. Um, and other people use the mind as a placeholder for the unknown. And these are important academic positions to take. But if you're a practicing mental health person, a clinician who is helping people with their minds. You're a psychotherapist, psyche being soul, intellect, spirit, and mind as synonyms in the Webster's Dictionary. So we're, we're, we're therapists of the mind. So to me, it's kind of out of our minds to not have a definition of mind because we're mind therapists. What's, what, what's going on here? And yeah. so 
so that's where we start. And then, of course, you you know there are descriptions of the mind, like it's your feelings and thoughts and memories and perceptions and hopes and dreams and longings and intentions and desires and beliefs. All that falls under the le- the term mental activities, and that's fine. But if you say, what do they all have in common? what makes us have a term, not all languages have it, like Hebrew or French, but most languages do, what, what is it that this mind that has all these activities, what is it? And that's what we can get into next. But, but this question uh, apparently um, has not been uh, attempted to be really answered in our field, mental health, or in any of these other fields that I just mentioned. And so it's a very exciting moment, and I don't know, you know, I, I talk about this in all my books, but it's never the main topic in this next book, Mind. It's the, it's, it's the main focus, and it says, okay, let's just ask one question in this book. You know, what is the mind? And so, you know, what, if, if the mind is where the self comes from, which most people believe, then, you know, who are we, what we are, maybe even why we're here, how we function, when we are, and where we are, all the who, what, why, where's of, of living, can be actually deepened by asking the question of, you know, where is the mind? What is the mind? How does the mind work? Why is there a mind? All these kinds of things. And so that's how I structured the book. And, and in, in, even in this discussion, Laura, you and I are having, what's so interesting about it is when you engage people, whether it's, you know, your, your guides in a desert in Namibia or, um, and I, let me tell you, the discussions that happened involving all of us, the different villagers that were there and the, the, the European descent people, um, you know, it was a fascinating common ground because no matter whether you've grown up in a small little village of the Ovajimba people, you know, in Namibia or you've grown up in New York City, you know, everybody has a mind. So the capacity to be deeply respectful, to actually find unity with people, and then to be open, saying, here's the question. Let's have the questioning illuminate the topic, which is the mind, and not feel like we have to come to some final answer. So this is the stance I think that's most helpful, uh, asking questions about, you know, what is the mind, and, and seeing if we can come up with some interesting further questions about that. Wow, that's going to be a fascinating book. And I want to talk about it more. But just when is it even coming out? Is it this year? Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's literally uh, going and once I do the next couple of days of finishing the final uh, edits, it's going to go to the printer and it'll be out. It'll be released for sure in November, maybe a teeny bit before of 2016. Wonderful. Well, I can't wait to read that, but I'm lucky that I get to hear more about it now. And so I'd like to comment. um, I was thinking maybe, well, the way I interpreted why the mind has never been mentioned, because I I remember even thinking about that when I was a child, like, Mm -hmm. what is the mind? And, um, but I kind of interpreted or put together an assumption that the reason why it wasn't really talked about in school and social work school or, you know, even during childhood years and throughout college was that we just don't know and we can't know. But now I realize that's not true. Well, it's an interesting thing. And it's so great that you asked the question. Um, 
for some reason, and, and, and I guess this is probably a really good place to, to dive into the ways of asking these uh, follow-up uh, explorations is like this. For some reason, some uh, fields, like let's say philosophy, uh, urge us not to make a definition of the word mind, and they don't offer one in the books uh, in philosophy of mind. In my field, in psychiatry, we don't have any definition of the mind short of brain activity, which is a pretty standard sort of medical, biological thing to say. And in fact, Hippocrates said it about 2,500 years ago. William James echoed that uh, 125 years ago in the Principles of Psychology, which you know was one of the foundational books for modern psychology. Psychology doesn't have a definition of the mind um, and say it's just a useful placeholder for the unknown. Um, and all of our fields, you know, then have just kind of dropped it. Now, of course, we can talk about feelings. So I want to be clear that we're using the term mind here not to compare it to emotions. Like some people say, oh, your mind is your intellect and your emotions is your heart. We're, we're not saying that. Mm. We're saying that the word mind includes emotions and feelings. In fact, it includes anything you can be subjectively aware of, like thoughts and reasoning. And so subjective experience is primary to mind. It's a description, not a definition, but you are aware of your um, subjective experience through consciousness. So you have consciousness and how it permits you to be aware of subjective experience. So that's one set of things that are part of mind. And then you have this thing called information processing, which is, you know, how you reason and problem solve and have, you know, thoughts that have a kind of a chain of interactions with each other. And this information processing doesn't need awareness, but it can be an awareness. But most of it probably is not an awareness. So we have consciousness, subjective experience, and information processing as three elements of mind. And when you're left with that, you say, well, isn't that a definition? And you say, well, let's try to define it. And when you say to someone, what is an emotion? And they say, oh, it's the processes in your brain that link what happens in your body up through your limbic area and into your cortex. Okay, well, that's describing a process, but what is that? You go, well, it's what you have when you're emotional. You go, well, what's that? You go, well, it's, you know, when you have a feeling, you have emotions, it goes round and round. Or if you take thought, the same thing. If you say, what is thinking? And people go, well, it's what you do when you have thoughts. And then, well, what's a thought? It's what you do when you have thinking. And it's just, you don't get anywhere. So without a definition, descriptions are kind of circular, and they also... These descriptions, while they're very prevalent, all these fields have descriptions, they don't really help us answer the next question, which is, what is a healthy mind? Because if I said to you, okay, well, let's say a thought is what happens when you're thinking. Okay, fine. That doesn't really say anything. Let's, let's just stay with that for a moment. So what's a healthy thought? You go, well, a healthy thought is um, um, it's a thought that makes you healthy. You go, you go well, <laughs> well, where do you, what do you mean? You go, well, it's, it's, the, it's not the thought that makes you unhealthy. I mean, uh, well, what? So, so here's what happened with me back, you know, in 1990 and 91 is I noticed all the people I was seeing for therapy came in with either chaos or rigidity. Mm. And I know it wasn't in the DSM like that, but that's just what it seemed to me. And I never really got the DSM much, but even though I had to study it and pass my board exams, but you know, it, it, it just was weird that everything seemed to be chaos or rigidity. So when I tried to find an answer to the question, 
why are my patients coming in with either chaos, rigidity, or both? What is that about? I couldn't find any science that addressed those patterns. So I was very upset, you know. I was really, like, nuts about this. And so I went to math, and in, in the, the division of math called probability theory, there was um, an area in math that said when what's called a complex system is not optimizing what's called self-organization, it tends to move to either chaos, rigidity, or both. And I, I literally screamed so loud I woke people up in the house. It was early in the morning. And I said, oh, my God, what is this self-organization thing? And it turns out that something called a complex system, which is a system that has three characteristics we'll define in a moment, but it's a certain kind of system, which is basically fundamental elements interacting with each other is what a system is. And a complex system is uh, a system that has these three qualities. It's open to influences from outside of itself. It's capable of being chaotic, and the most important one for some mathematicians is it's nonlinear, meaning small inputs to this system with initial observation, you can't really tell what's happening. Now, you could ultimately tell, but, but on the surface, you can't really predict what the result will be from an input to the system, and that's called nonlinear. So nonlinear, chaos, capable, and open. And I thought, well, our lives are that way. You know, our, our mental experience is that way. You're capable of being chaotic. You're influenced by stuff from outside yourself. And if something small happens to you in the morning, wow, it can affect your whole day. So when you read on about complex systems, which have this pattern when they're not optimally self-organized, they go to chaos or rigidity, you find that every complex system has something called emergent properties. And one of the emergent properties, it means you don't have to program it. It just naturally arises from the interaction of the elements like cloud, uh, clouds. Let's say clouds, for example. Water molecules and air molecules are the elements of clouds. They interact with each other to form their shapes. And the shapes are formed by the self-organizing emergent property of a cloud. So then I thought, well... I was in a group where the group was going to disband because no one could agree on what the mind was. And we were asking the question, what's the connection between the mind and the brain? And a lot of the scientists in the room said, oh, it's mind is brain activity. Mind is what brain does. But the anthropologists and sociologists and linguists in the room didn't like that statement. So the whole group was going to fall apart. So I had to come up with a statement on like, well, what might the mind be beyond just brain activity? Maybe that's a part of the story, but it's not the whole story, even though for 2,500 years, it's kind of been the stance of medicine. So, uh, so I said to myself as I went for this walk, well, what if the mind was some part of energy and information flow that happened within you and in your head? So part of brain functioning is energy patterns that make representations of things called information. So representations of something else is, a, is what information is, a representation. And so that's always carried on an energy pattern. So what if energy and information flow is the fundamental unit? So it happens in the brain, and in fact, it goes throughout the whole body. But it's also happening, you know, in a relationship between a parent and a child or a therapist and a client or in a culture through media and communication. So energy information flow might be what an anthropologist or sociologist or a linguistics person or psychologist or biologist such as a neuroscientist 
or even a physicist studying quantum physics, you know, anyone interested in things like consciousness, you know, might be particularly uh, open to the idea that the mind could be proposed to be this, the self-organizing emergent property of a complex system. And its location is both embodied, so it's not just in the skull, it's in the whole body, and it's relational. It happens between us as well as within us. That's the interpersonal word. And what if this self-organizing emergent embodied relational process is what the mind is or one aspect of the mind? What is it actually doing? It's regulating energy and information flow both within us and between us. And then you could say, how do you optimize self-organization and there's an answer that comes from math and it's you differentiate the components of the system you make them different or special or unique like up and down or left and right or in a cloud different aspects of the cloud um or in a relationship between people would be you know you are distinct from me laura but we honor the differences and in fact maybe enjoy the differences and then we link with compassionate, respectful communication. Mm. So that would be differentiating and linking. And to put a word to it, it's not using math, but the word we can use is integration. Right. So for me, integration defines health. And self-organization defines the mind. And therefore, you can then say a healthy mind is a mind that is regulating energy and information flow in a way that differentiates and links, that is it creates integration to create these five features of optimal self-organization, which basically create harmony. But the five qualities are, they spell the word FACES, F-A-C-E-S. It's flexible, it's adaptive, it has the mathematical quality called coherence, which is basically resilience. It's energized and it's stable. Flexible, F, A, adaptive, C, coherent, E, energized, S, stable. To me, that mathematical set of concepts is the best definition of mental health I have ever seen. And for me, it describes how we as therapists can help our clients detect chaos and rigidity when it's there as a sign of impaired integration. Mm -hmm. Find one of many domains of integration that are impaired and then like a laser beam, focus attention, which is the driving of energy information flow to snag the brain, to stimulate neuronal activation and growth, and to change relational communication so that you're promoting integration, which is promoting health. That's the whole approach. Therapists, we've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use therapy notes. Therapy notes makes it easy to write your notes get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used therapy notes for six years and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend Therapy Notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code CHAT to get two free months. I don't know if this 
question really makes sense, but how can that be applied in our direct work with people in the yeah. focused attention? Well, the way, the way to apply it, it's a great question. It makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I tried to describe this in a book called Mindsight um, and a book called The Mindful Therapist so clinicians can see how to address that, that really great question you're asking. Um, the first stage is to say that you as a therapist have at your disposal a huge amount of science now from this interpersonal neurobiology library to basically say, how can I take any particular approach that says I'm trained in? So I'm trained in, you know, cognitive therapy. I'm trained in behavior therapy. I'm trained in EEG work. I'm trained in somatic work. I'm trained in EMDR. I'm trained in psychoanalysis. I do psychodynamic work. I do narrative work. You name it. There's so many, you know, hundreds of approaches to therapy. We have le much less, of course, that have been scientifically validated, but that doesn't mean the ones you've taught are not working or are not great just because no one's about to do the science. But in any event, interpersonal neurobiology is not a form of therapy. It informs therapy. So I want to just make that clear. Now, once you say that, then you say, okay, well, I'm trained in psychodynamic therapy or I'm a narrative therapist or I do cognitive therapy. Fine. Any form of therapy, I feel, from what I've been able to read about or be taught or when I've asked to do addresses to the different you know, international organizations of these groups, is that what, what therapy does is it's a relationship between a therapist and a client or a patient where you are having what's called joint attention. You're focusing attention with your client. And what that does is it directs the way energy and information flow is going to be shared between the two people in therapy, or if it's group therapy, obviously with many people, or family therapy with many or couples. So you could apply it in any of those settings. But you're basically focusing attention in a particular way. The next thing you do is understand that where attention goes for your client's brain, neural firing flows and neural connection grows. Hmm. So this is the secret that you don't have to be a neurosurgeon and do, you know, have a scalpel and do surgery to change the structure of the brain. You can detect chaos or rigidity, learn to do an interpersonal neurobiology approach to assessment of what that chaos or rigidity means in terms of where is integration blocked. Find out where differentiation needs to be harnessed and where then linkage needs to be cultivated so that you, with the direction of attention, can strategically, like a laser beam, focus attention so where attention goes, neural firing in your client's brain goes, and neural connection grows. This is how you change the structure of your client's brain so it becomes more integrated. Now, to do that, you need to look at the definition of the, the mind, which is you know, this emergent self-organizing so that's fine. You're going to work with that in a moment. Embodied and relational. So you're going to use a relationship to have energy be driven between the two of you and also drive it into the body of your client. That's going to get neuroplasticity harnessed. And then what is it doing? It's regulating energy and information flow. So your friend is energy and information flow. Flow just means change. 
Information is a symbolic form of energy, and energy comes in many, many forms like light, sound, uh, for people who do somatic work, touch. Um, in the brain, it's electrochemical energy. And these forms of energy then, so and energy is a potential to create you know, actuality from possibility. That's a long story, but you can do the wheel of awareness practice and explore that yourself. But for now, let me just point out to the regulation word. Regulating energy and information flow means this. Regulation always involves two things. It involves the capacity to monitor something, like let's say you're going to regulate your bicycle. You're going to sense where you're going, monitor it, but then you're going to shape how you're going or modify it. So the monitoring part, you can teach your client how to strengthen how they can monitor energy and information flow. What does strengthen mean? It means you stabilize a kind of tripod that holds up this, mind, I call it mind sight, mind sight lens. So you can have with openness, objectivity, and observation, these ways you can actually teach this, you strengthen your client's capacity to monitor energy and information flow. Because if they don't have that strengthened, then everything's going to be a jumble. So it's like going to the park with them with a video camera and everything is shaky. You haven't stabilized the camera. So when you go back to look at what's on your, your um, screen, it's all jumbly. It's not in focus. When you stabilize the lens with this monitoring stage of therapy, strengthening monitoring, you're basically allowing yourself to work with the client to allow both of you to see with more depth, more clarity, and more focus. And you see more details. Then, once you've taught that, that's the first stage of therapy, is monitoring is strengthened and stabilized. The next stage is to modify in a very particular way and you teach clients how to modify toward integration. So you detect chaos and rigidity when that's there and then you teach them how to differentiate and link. And these are all very teachable skills for therapists to learn. In all the lectures I do or the books I write for therapists, you know, you can learn how to do this very readily. I mean, my students can do this. They don't know anything about this. They learn it and now they're doing therapy in a different way and applying it within the framework that they've been taught or trying out in new ways, things that they haven't done. And so what the modification is then is you're detecting where differentiation hasn't occurred, whether it's between two people, respecting differences or in the brain up and down or left and right, lots of forms of differentiation and linkage. You then promote linkage and amazingly, Here's the secret of the sauce. The drive toward integration is often blocked in our clients, either from experientially acquired blockages to differentiation or linkage, or genetically or in other ways, you know, innately acquired blockages. And so what's been absolutely amazing in revising the developing mind where all this is published a couple of years ago, or just in finishing this last book, Mind, you know, if you look at studies of, well, let's look at the DSM. If you look at the DSM, all symptoms of all syndromes can be reinterpreted as chaos or rigidity. So that's just interesting. <laughs> and if you look at all studies so far to date, there may be exceptions in the future, but to date, every study of the brain of individuals with a major psychiatric challenge to mental health, like, let's say, patients with schizophrenia, impaired integration, work of Marcus Rakel at University of Washington, St. Louis, 
patients with bipolar disorder, manic depressive illness, work of Hillary Bloomberg at Yale, impaired integration in the brain, people with obsessive compulsive disorder here at UCLA, impaired integration in the brain, people with autism, again, the work of Marcus Rakel, impaired integration in the brain. Those are not from what anybody has done. No parents have caused that. It's in, innate in some ways. We don't know all the details, but it's not a clear case of something being caused by parents by any means. If you take clear documented cases of abuse, parental abuse, and parental neglect, this is the work of Martin Teicher at Harvard University. What do you see? Impaired integration in the brain. So, so far, every study that's been done on impairments to mental health has affirmed that impaired integration is present. And a study that just came out a couple of months ago from the International uh, Connectome, Human Connectome Project, uh, one of my students sent it to me the day it came out, and it was, I, I can't even tell you the feeling inside of me now, so many years since the hypothesis was first made 25 years ago. That study looks at the differentiate areas of the brain and how they're linked, so they don't use the word integration, but we can use it because that's how we're defining integration, the linkage of differentiated parts. When they did a huge meta-analysis of all positive traits in a human's life, you know, good relationships, happiness, experience at work, not smoking, whatever, any positive trait, and they tried to correlate it with the connectome that was present, how differentiated areas are linked. The number one combination that predicted positive life traits was how integrated your brain was. So we now have the two sides of the coin. We have impairments to mental health or impairments to integration. And now, finally, the study of well-being has the best predictor of well-being is how integrated your brain is. So the hypothesis from a quarter of a century ago now has empirical data to support what I think is a whole new paradigm for us in mental health, which is to say that integration is the source of health. For the mind, one aspect of the mind is the regulatory process that creates integration. And here's the secret. You as a therapist can learn these basics. We now have a common core curriculum. You are an integrationist. You're not a shrink. You are an integrationist. <laughs> and with the concept of integration, so far, at least my students can affirm this, it gets you home every time. Clients come to you with this problem or that problem. It's chaos or rigidity. It's impaired integration. You find out where the integration is impaired. You know that differentiation is blocked and or linkage is blocked. You do your attention focus to snag the brain, stimulate neuronal activation and growth, and you are seeing changes. This isn't just me, and I, you know, this is all these students who have worked under me. You know, learning this approach, you see changes in people that before were stuck in different modalities of therapy. So, you know, it's, it's not a form of therapy, but it's a grounding in science that now has a lot of empirical support. We would never say it's been proven, but there's a ton of support. And the clinical practical applications have proven to be hugely effective, according to the people who are using them. So um, this is a very exciting moment. And, you know, for me, this whole journey and writing about it in this mind book, you know, it's been just almost like a, a dream because it, it just started with a deep sense of frustration and, you know, this feeling like we in the field of mental health 
ought to be able to define the mind, which now we can do, ought to be able to define mental health, which now we can do, and ought to be able to then come up with practical applications of those two questions being at least uh, answered to some extent, um, and then help our clients, our patients lead not just lives without symptoms, which is the classic old view of mental health as the absence of meeting DSM criteria, but actually um, help them lead incredibly vitalized, enriched, deeply rewarding, meaningful, connected lives. That's incredibly wonderful. And I can't help but notice how depathologizing your perspective on this is as well. You know, it's not symptom focused. It's that idea that all brains can be healthy with, you know, removing blockages that everyone has a drive toward integration. And I mean, there's such a pathologizing view, I think, in the DSM of some people just have these disorders, and they're just permanently sick. And we know that's not true. You know, I, you know that's so beautifully said, Laura. I you know, I, I don't. I don't think I have anything to add to it. Except <laughs> that's so beautiful. You know, the um, the notion that you're really describing so beautifully uh, that we need to be health focused, and you know, not just about you know positive uh, psychology or something like that, which which actually doesn't offer a definition of the mind, or you know, or even the or even ways of approaching what we can do in mental health, particularly though it's a wonderful field. It's really about uh, you know what exactly what you're describing. We we look with the deep potential everyone has that self organization has an innate drive to heal, and stuff gets in the way to to have this natural self organizational push toward integration. So when you look like I'm doing a chapter now with Barb Fredrickson, who's written beautifully about positive states and about love, you know, one thing I'm going to try to bring in to this chapter with with uh, Barb Fredrickson is the idea that, you know, this interpersonal neurobiology view allows us to see that emotions can be seen as a shift in integration. So, so the work we do in therapy is always emotional in the sense that if emotion is a shift in integration and positive emotions are upticks in integration, that's what I think they are. Negative emotions like prolonged fear and anger and sadness and shame and despair those are all down ticks in emotion. It doesn't in, in integration. It doesn't make them bad. So I'm always worried about you know positive versus negative terms being misinterpreted. But if they're prolonged, they lead to a shutting down of things rather than what Far Fredrickson beautifully talks about as you know um, this broaden and build state of positivity. So from an interpersonal neurobiology point of view, that important contribution from from Barb Fredrickson in the positive psychology field helps us see in therapy that what we're doing is we're trying to release an innate drive towards these positive states. But one thing we can think about is that everyone has this potential. And we are in a very um, important moment in our evolution as a, as a career, as a discipline, um, to say, let's be health-focused. Let's realize that people all have this innate capacity for healing. So in some of the discussions we have, for example, in the desert in Namibia, uh, you know, everyone was getting involved because whatever your culture was, there were, everyone has a mind so we could 
find this common ground across all these cultural backgrounds we had. Some people had been abused as children. We could talk about that in the group. Some people had horrible traumas that were just in their adulthood. We could talk about that. We could talk about what was happening on the global level. Because these issues of integration, by the way, are not just about a person's individual life. They're about families. They're about schools. They're about communities. They're about nations. They're about actually... You know, the work I do with you know, people in the uh, global challenges with, with climate change, these issues we're talking about apply completely to that. So what it does for us in mental health is it reminds us that, you know, people are part of an interconnected whole. The idea that we're an isolated, separate me is not only wrong, but it's actually a quite a destructive view. And it's probably one of the several reasons why in the United States, People are more miserable, uh, even though we have more material well-being, uh, more material stuff. People are absolutely stressed out and depressed because people feel so disconnected. And I think part of that, not the whole story, but part of that is that we've excessively differentiated a private self as the totality of our identity. And instead of having you know, what I call a we, you know, we just have a me, 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 me. Whereas a mui says, okay, I have a body, I need to have good sleep for this body, good food for this body, exercise this body, I need to understand this body's history so I have a coherent narrative of where I've come from my own childhood, all that is important as a me. But we equally have an identity as a we, and you don't want to get rid of the me, and you also want to embrace the we that we're interconnected not only with other people but with the planet. And so, you know, this word mui, is a, M-W-E, is a way of having both. And I think a we identity is truly what having an integrated identity is. And part of what we do in mental health, I think, is to you know, support that. And by having this articulated with words and having it backed up by science, you can do something like this practice I mentioned earlier, the Wheel of Awareness practice, where you know, if you haven't done it, go to my website, drdansiegel.com, and go to the Resources tab and go to the Wheel. And just try out the Wheel because... You know, I've been doing this now with a lot of people in workshops, and uh, the feedback uh, that we get from not just in the workshop, but people afterwards about when they do the wheel as a regular practice uh, has just been so, so deeply moving because it allows you to not only integrate consciousness, which is what its purpose is, but it allows you to expand a sense of self, not get rid of a sense of self, but expand it in a way that the, e- the, the feedback we're getting in these emails is that it's deeply, deeply connecting and meaningful for people in a way that they didn't experience before. And it's a practice that I do every day, and it's a practice you know, that is accessible to all clinicians when you say, well, how can I integrate, let's say, consciousness for my clients or for myself even? You know, here's a practice where we have it. This is how you do it. And it, it seems to work. And, and so that's a a very exciting moment, and uh, I'm not going to get into it here, but, you know, in some of the work I'm doing now with uh, neuroscientists and with quantum physics folks and uh, other people um, about the nature of consciousness, this wheel has not just the power to lead to clinical improvement, but it illuminates the very nature of consciousness itself as it's integrating consciousness, and that has some very interesting implications I talk about in the mind book and uh, writing a future book about the wheel practice too. But it's, um, it's just an incredibly exciting moment to be in mental health and to have these, these groundings in science that are practically 
um, useful for us as clinicians. It is. It's such an amazing time. And please keep doing this fascinating research that you're doing because, oh my gosh, how it's contributing to making the world a better place. Like, oh, wow. Well, there's a lot for all of us to do together. And, you know, together we can make this happen. (laughs) So I will link to all the resources you mentioned in the show notes for this episode, your website, drdansiegel.com, and the Wheel of Awareness practice there, and the Norton series on interpersonal neurobiology, um, the Mindsight, The Mindful Therapist, The Developing Mind, and, of course, your new book, When It Comes Out. Um, and anything else that we talked about, I'll go back and make sure it gets put into the notes so people can easily find it. Oh, that's wonderful, Laura. Thank you so much. You know, the more we can connect with each other around these important issues, you know, the more we can get uh, uh, incredible change. And the last thing I just want to add to this, our, our conversation today is, you know, this is the thing that's kind of shocking, but... The simple thing, and you said earlier on, the, the phrase interpersonal neurobiology can be intimidating. But here's a, just a simple thing to, to consider. You know, this integration thing we're talking about that you can promote as a therapist, when integration is made real, when it's made visible, the outcome is kindness and compassion. And so you have this deep scientific view of, of, of kind of a, a wisdom tradition perspective that blends the deepest kinds of science with very practical experience of making this a more compassionate and a kinder world. So that's, that's the kind of role we can play uh, in our individual lives, for our clients, for people we encounter in the world, and for the lo- world at large. And I am so proud to be a member of our field of mental health and to be working with you and with others really to, to um, really create a, a foundational uh, joining in how we approach our work as mental health practitioners. Oh, it's beautiful. And I just think about how the more we realize that we're all connected, you know, the world can't remain so violent and disconnected, you know? Exactly, exactly. And it can feel sometimes like, what can I do? Well, that's what you can do. (laughs) We can all do that. Completely. And together we can make it happen. That's, that's, that's the thing. We're not in this alone. And when we join with each other and really support each other and get empathic joy out of each other's success, it's just a win-win thing. And this is, this is the change, you know, that we can create in the world, starting with ourselves. And it's a great honor to be here with you, Laura. Thank you. Dr. Dan Siegel, thank you so much for being on Therapy Chat today. I can't wait to share this with my audience. Thank you for having me. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com 
to find a trauma therapist near you today. Wow, that was so interesting. You can find more about what Dr. Dan Siegel is doing at www.drdansiegel.com. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Dan Siegel as much as I did. And thank you for listening to Therapy Chat today. Stay tuned for a little bit more information about what I've got coming up. Hi, this is Laura Reagan, your host for Therapy Chat. All of you trauma therapists in the audience, I want to tell you about a special offering. I'm creating a community for trauma therapists. Do you ever feel like you're climbing a mountain all alone? wishing you had someone to guide you? Working as a trauma therapist can feel overwhelming and affect us in so many ways. Gather with us for clinical case consultation, camaraderie, and support to combat the isolation. Join a group of fellow trauma professionals who will come together to share collective wisdom and effective strategies for working with clients, as well as help taking care of ourselves so we can continue to practice effectively and ethically for years to come. Registration opens soon, and to get the information... Sign up by visiting my website at www.lauraregan.lcswc.com and click on Trauma Therapist Community. Hope to see you there. If you like this episode of Therapy Chat, please visit iTunes to subscribe so you can receive all the latest episodes directly to your computer or smartphone when they're released. And please leave a rating and review. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan. LCSWC. For more information, visit Laura's website at www.lauraregan.lcswc.com.